Thank you for tuning in to listen to this sermon from the Ville Church. To find out more about us and our weekly scheduled services, please visit theville.church. Hey everybody, my name is Jeremy. I'm one of the pastors here and um, Jay is actually out of town. Um, actually, when we get into it, when we, before we start reading the text today, I'm going to pray and pray for Jay, so I'll let you know what he's up to. But for everybody else, um, if this is your first week, this is actually a, a pretty interesting week that you showed up. Because we just did a series called Each One Reach One, as you see behind me in the cool graphics that we make, um, where we, we went over how initiative that we want to start in the Ville Church. And so we did, did the series, but it's going to continue to go. It's going to continue to go. Um, it's that we want each member of the church, each person that calls us home, to, to be praying for somebody, to eat with them, and then to invite them uh, to church, to Jesus, um, every month. And that seems pretty legalistic when I say it, right? It's like, and if you don't, beat it, you know. But that's not, that's not the truth. The, it's, well, actually, I'm going to get into it more, because we just finished a series, and we're about to go into a new series called <clears throat> Christian vs. Disciple, where we pit this idea in America, in the South, everyone says they're Christian, but what does it mean to be a disciple? Because we, we have a bunch of different ideas of what Christianity is, and anyone can say, yeah, I'm a Christian, but can you actually say you're a disciple, that you follow Jesus? So this is an in-between of those two. And basically, the each one reach one, this whole idea of it is our first response to our discipleship with Jesus. And that's, that's the tie-in. That's what we're going to be talking about today. So um, before we get started, I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to pray for Jay. Uh, Jay this weekend had to do a funeral for one of his friends, um, which is extremely hard. And then, so he did that yesterday. And then today he's in Orlando because... His daughter's boyfriend's getting baptized, which is awesome. Um, but this is, this is just <laughs> the life of a pastor, right? You, you have to help bury someone you're close to. And then the next day, celebrate someone coming into the kingdom. And so the, when we say weep with those who weep, rejoice with those who rejoice, it covers the full spectrum. So he has a lot of emotions going on. So I want to pray for him. And I want to pray for people in our church. There's a lot of people sick. Um, a lot of people have called out. A lot of people have, um, I don't know, nasal issues. I don't know if that's a thing. That's what I've heard. A lot of nasally things happening. And uh, so I'm going to pray for everybody, and then we're going to get started. Lord, we come before you today. We, we want to learn. We open our hearts. We open our minds. We want to know who you are. We want to know who you created us to be. Um, we want to know truth. Uh, the, world, the world deceives. The world twists the truth, and, and it lies to us. And we know if we come to you, seeking you honestly, that you will actually reveal yourself to us because that's what you say you do in your holy scripture. So this morning, we, we come before you. We, we want to know you. And we pray for Jay um, and all the feelings and um, heaviness and joy that he's feeling all mixed together. Um, we pray for his family, and we pray for all the people sick. Uh, that we trust that you're the great physician, that you know what you're doing. You don't make mistakes. And, and even in the sickness, that you didn't create us to be sick. You didn't create 
uh, the world and creation to have illness and disease in it. But even in the midst of it, it graces us because we can slow down and actually seek you out. We can stop our busy schedules and see our neediness for you. So we thank you for that. And we hope that people get better soon. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, so today we're going to be talking about a text in John chapter 1. It's at the very end. I think it's going to be about 35 to 51. And what we normally do is I'll read you the text, and then we'll go back over it and split it up. But I think this week I decided we're just going to go slowly at a time because, well, you'll see, I'll ask you some questions what you think is about to happen so you don't know. So no cheating. Get off your phones. Don't read ahead. Um, You can read ahead. You can do whatever you want. Um, But basically, so 35, 34 verses into John 1, we see John laying out who this Jesus is. Um, We see there's two Johns, so I'm going to say there's John, and then there's JTB, John the Baptist, okay? JTB, he basically, it's kind of his story. He's going out. He's baptizing people with water. He's saying, like, look, I'm not a I'm not Elijah, I'm not the Messiah, and there's someone going to come that is way greater than me. And then that person comes, he says he sees a spirit descend from heaven on him, this guy Jesus, and it blows his mind. He's so excited, and he's talking to everyone about it, and everyone's like, what's happening? Everyone's getting really excited. All right, that's the context. So after this happens, the next day again, John is standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. So JTB has two guys that are his disciples, and they hear him say something about another guy walking by, like, Check it out. Behold. That's the Lamb of God. And they look at each other, probably, and then they look at John the Baptist, and then they decide, well, we're going to, we're going to walk behind him. We're going to follow him. Because disciples back in the day, uh, they literally followed, they walked behind the people that they wanted to be their teachers, that they wanted to learn from. There wasn't formal education. You go to school, whatever. When you saw someone you wanted to learn from and you called teacher, you literally followed them. You walk behind them, waiting for them to speak, seeing how they interact, checking out how they move. And it's, it's kind of like um, Forrest Gump running back and forth across the country, and people just start following him. Because they're like, he's on to something. This guy's smarter than all of us. And so they just keep running back and forth, right? Um, and if Forrest Gump is an example that's out of context because no one understands anymore, it's a sad day for everybody that's here. Um, so... It's a movie in the mid-90s, 94. I don't know. That's fine. Did you get it? Okay. Cool. So it's exactly like that. And uh, um, when when you follow someone, you consider them your teacher in some form, okay? And they have information that you actually want. Nowadays, we don't do that. Does anyone, did anyone follow anyone in this building? No? Not one person. Okay. So nowadays we don't do that. We actually follow people still because it's still what we do, but we do it from afar. We do it on social platforms, right? We want to know what people are thinking. We want to know the information they have. We want to know what's going on with them. Um, But 
we usually follow people who don't know us back, right? So we could follow, be it Christian leaders reading their blogs or whatever, celebrities, politicians, athletes, designers, artists, whoever. We're all following different people and have our hands and ears like trying to figure out what they know and what we can learn from them. But there's no interaction with the person. There's only interaction with the information they give. So that's a, a big difference. And the reason that's a big difference is because what happens next would never happen today when we follow people. And this is what happens next. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, what are you seeking? So John the Baptist is like, behold, son of God. People are like, we're going to follow him. So they start following him. And right when Jesus sees this, he turns, sees him following, which is just a weird thing. Like you're just walking and then you realize people are behind you. And you're like, what are you seeking? Now, this is one of those questions that kind of leap off the page in the Bible. What are you seeking? It's the first word spoken by Jesus in the Gospel of John. And and it's more than a question to just these two guys following him. It's, It's placement in the Gospel at the very beginning as the very first words of Jesus. It's basically John who wrote this Gospel. He's begging the question to anyone reading anyone reading this account, what are you seeking? What do you want to know from Jesus? And as you read on, let's, let's figure out if he can answer that. So my question for you guys today is this. How would you respond to that question? How would you respond to that question? Saying, if Jesus was right in front of you, and he asked you this question, what are you seeking? What would your answer be? And I want you to think about it and actually be honest because I don't want to hear the answer that you think you should tell Jesus, but to be blatantly honest, because Jesus knows what you're seeking. So if you lie, he's going to call you out and expose it. So, but just really think in your heart, like, what are you seeking? If whoever you think Jesus is, and he asks you that question, what are you seeking? So I'm going to give you a minute. We're going to turn on the house lights. They don't know this. And I want you to think about it. And I want you to turn to a neighbor and talk to someone about it. I want you to tell them in one minute, 30 seconds each. Probably some people will be 10 seconds. Some people will be 50 seconds. Some people might be a minute 30. I have to quiet them down. But what are you seeking? If Jesus asked you that, what would you tell him? One minute. I see about 70% of people participating. It's a lot higher than I thought. So I'm actually proud of you guys. All right, you got about 15 more seconds.
All right, time. So <clears throat> if you didn't get a chance to speak, well, guess what? You don't get to answer to Jesus. So you missed your chance. Just plain. All right, listen. So when I think through this, when I think through the question, if Jesus were to ask me, and this before reading into this text and really kind of just trying not to, like, cheat, I was like, if, if God asked me himself, if God himself asked me, what are you seeking? I thought, like, three kind of different things. Either generally answers, like, I, I'd want to know why this happens, why that happens, God. Please tell me, make it known to me. Um, I also think clarity. I'd, I'd like to know what my future holds. I'd like to know what I should be doing, where I should be going. Um, and the last one is, I'd probably be seeking a change of circumstances. Like, I, I don't like where I am in life, in this area and that area. So what I'm seeking is to get out of where I'm at. So these are kind of three different areas, depending on the day, if Jesus asked me what I would respond. Either answers, or clarity, or um, a change of circumstances. But let's actually look at these two guys, how they respond to Jesus. They say this, and they said to him, Rabbi, where are you staying? He said to them, come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. So that's an interesting response. Jesus asked them a question, and they, they respond with this question, Rabbi, where are you staying? And this actually, when I started thinking about it, was a real big gut punch, spiritual gut punch to me. Um, what are they seeking? They're, they're seeking to be wherever Jesus is at. They're, they're seeking to remain with him where he goes, and just to be in his presence. That's what they want. Rabbi, uh, Hebrew for teacher, they're saying teacher, because that's what you follow the person that you want to teach them. Teacher, where are you staying? And what's interesting is their immaturity, like these, these aren't like some awesome spiritual giants. Their immaturity will be clearly visible as this gospel goes on. But this is just the beginning. And What's interesting is maturity is not the crucial issue in discipleship. When we think of, like, following Jesus, we think, well, how mature are we? How, how, how much have I grown? How much, what? But that's not the crucial issue here. Maturity is not our biggest concern in following Jesus. The crucial issue is whether we desire to come and see and abide and stay in God's divine presence. Do we want to be with God? That's the crucial issue of discipleship. It's not, well, what am I doing? How do I do this? How do I fix this? How do I get to there? How do I change this? It's do you just, do you desire to be in the presence of God? Which is a very strikingly challenging question. Because I know for a fact, we can all say that we have desired to binge watch a show over them being the, in the presence of God, that we have desired to clean our house, those of us that don't even like cleaning, and avoiding being in the presence of God, to just be doing something to distract ourselves so we don't feel guilty for not being in the presence of God. So Jesus' response to them when they say, where are you staying? Because what they're saying is, we, 
we just want to go, what are we seeking? We want to be with you. And he says, come, and you will see. In, in the Greek, I'm not trying to geek out on you guys, but in the Greek, it's a conditional imperative, which means it's better translated, translated as this. If you come, and I want you to, you will see. So Jesus is saying, it's your choice to come if you want. I'm telling you, I, I really want you to. And if you decide to, you literally will see where I'm staying, but the see here means something more than that, and we'll get to that later. So um, the answers, the clarity, the changes that I seek um, as a part of my journey with Jesus, the, the thing is, I don't want a journey. I, I want the answers. I want to be at the end. I want to know. And uh, because I want the things, well, this is the reason. Why don't I not want to just journey with Jesus and find out along the way when he feels his timing's right for me? It's because I want Jesus' things that he offers and not Jesus. That's really what I want. I don't want to spend time with Jesus. I just know he has so much to offer. And I'm like, well, you know the future. You know the past. You can change anything. You're my genie. Make this happen for me. And that's how I view you. I don't view him as this, as this person, loving, uh, merciful, that is inviting me just to be in his presence. Um, I just, I feel like I know what I want, and I want to get it from Jesus. But the thing is, what's embarrassing is we are unbelievably fickle creatures, meaning we don't even know what we want. What I wanted when I was 15, when I was 20, when I was 25, and when I was 30, all different. It's always changing. What I want always changes. But the thing is, God knows what I truly want, and better yet, he actually knows what I need. He actually knows what I need. So I can sit here and pretend like I think I know what I want, and God answer this, and blah, blah, blah. But that's all going to change. But God is saying, come with me, and I'll show you what you need. I'll show you what you want. And as we spend time with him and in his presence, he will make it known to us. That's his promise. If you seek, you'll find. If you knock, he'll answer. That's his promise to us. So he wants us to come and see, but he will not force us. He's not going to force your hand. He's offering an invitation. So discipleship, meaning following Jesus, following after Jesus, begins with our choice to leave our current life, the current things that we follow, to go seek after Jesus and follow him. So it actually means leaving where you are, what you know, and then going after Jesus, wherever that may lead. Um, so to put that in perspective, that's how you, you start it. But then if there's people in here that have been following Jesus, and anyone in here that has been following him for a while knows that discipleship in Jesus is like this sometimes. Like sometimes you feel super close. Other times you feel like maybe this, all, this whole thing's a hoax. And you just go in between these two things. And, but discipleship in Jesus from now as Christians until death looks like faithfully remaining with Jesus in a, in, in a life of loving obedience to what he's called us to do. Because we're going to want to divert so many times by so many things we're distracted by. But Jesus is saying, come follow me. I will lead you to eternal life. I'll lead you to true life. 
every other place you go to is actually going to lead you to death. So if you want life, if you want, if you want to know eternal truth, then you, you need to follow me and stay following me. It's not just a one-time decision. Most people think like, oh, I, wanna, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I'm going to get baptized. I'm cool. Boom, done. Take it to heaven in my hand. But you miss out on the most amazing grand part of being a Christian. You actually get to be with God himself forever, where he gets to answer all your questions, that he gets to, in his own timing, he gets to give you everything that you need that you don't even know you need, everything you want that you don't know you want. And yet still, and we can all testify to this if you're a Christian, you can think back at times where you're like, this was very real to me, I knew it was real, and yet I'm at a place now where I'm looking at other things, thinking this might give me life because I'm impatient, I don't want to keep following, I don't trust that where the path is going. So discipleship, following Jesus, is just faithfully believing that Jesus is who he says he is and that we're going to um, lovingly obey what he says because he knows what's best for us. And the last thing I want to point out about that last verse is, you know, it said at the end that it was the 10th hour deal. So he's like, yeah, come on, see, and it was the 10th hour. Well, what's interesting about that is the 10th hour in Jewish world uh, means 10 hours since sunrise. So uh, the day begins at 6 a.m. So the 10th hour would be 4 p.m. And around this time, most Jews would actually be preparing their main meal to eat before dusk, before it got dark. So it could easily be seen that Jesus is offering these two disciples of John the Baptist fellowship over dinner. Like Jesus would be inviting them to come stay with him, eat some dinner, and probably sleep over where Jesus is at. Um, and I just want to point that out because it's another example of eating being a part of inviting people to Jesus. That, that fellowship over meals, common like eating meals together, it, there's something that happens there. There's something that happens there. All right, we're going to move on. One of the two who heard John speak, John the Baptist speak, and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, we have found the Messiah. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, Peter. All right. If you're a Christian, you probably know, you've heard of Peter, right? You've heard of Peter. Peter's like one of the guys, like the strong guy, like he's the guy. But how many of you have actually heard of Andrew? Y'all know Andrew? Y'all know about Andrew? Andrew's that dude, and I'll tell you why. Andrew is that guy because every time we meet Andrew in the gospel, he is bringing someone to Jesus. In John, we meet him three times. At first, he's bringing his brother Simon to Jesus. We'll see him later. He's bringing a boy that has two fish and five loaves to Jesus because Jesus wants to feed 5,000. He's bringing the boy. And later, we'll see him bringing a bunch of Greeks to Jesus. Every time we see him, he's bringing someone to Jesus, which just gets me thinking, like, we put so much emphasis on, like, certain people being awesome. But you know that anyone that actually has a relationship with Jesus, someone probably brought him? Like anyone in your mind that think, man, aren't they the greatest? Aren't they the most, the coolest, most awesome people? Someone took the time to actually bring them into relationship to Jesus, inviting them into relationship with Jesus. And so when a lot of us think like, 
I'm not going to be Peter. Like, Peter's Peter. You have every opportunity. You don't know who God's going to put in your path that you could actually extend the invitation for them to come into the faith. Um, in Cephas right here, it's Aramaic. It means rock. Um, in Greek, that would be Petrus. Uh, in South African, it'd be Piet. I don't know if he's here today. Um, and then in English, it's Peter. So um, Jesus changes Simon's name to Peter. The rock is what it means. So he was the rock before the rock, okay? That's a m little more current um, analogy, so y'all probably understand that one. All right. So, but the funny thing about him calling, so imagine, like, Jesus calling you and be like, hey, um, Jeremy, you're actually now the rock. That's your name. I'd be like, me? I'm not, uh, I'm not very rock-like. I don't know what you mean by that, Jesus. And what's funny is we see Peter, as we go through the gospel, he's not very rock-like either because he's not solid. He's anything but solid, um, firm, immovable. He's actually impulsive, quick to waver, to question. And we all know at the end, he totally denies Jesus. What kind of rock is that? So I was like, Jesus, I think you named the wrong person Peter. Maybe he was pointing at the person behind Peter, and Peter just thought, oh, I'm the rock. Yeah, I'm the rock. No, that's not how it happened. And the reason we know that is because, one, Jesus doesn't make mistakes. Two, in the Old Testament, God frequently changes people's names to indicate their special calling. And a new name would be given to foreshadow the person that God would create someday. Not who you are right now, but who you're created to be and who you will fulfill one day and who you are. Um, so, <clears throat> which leads me to ask another question. We're not going to take a minute to answer this, but I, I want you all to think about it. What kind of name do you think God has chosen for you? If you are a Christian, if you, if you believe and are following Jesus, what kind of name do you think God would give you. Um, and what kind of name has God given you? Because he has. And I know some of us are thinking, like, I wouldn't even want to know um, because I don't deserve a name that means anything. I'd actually be nervous if people knew what God thought of me because we, we have a very low view of ourselves. And then others are thinking, like me, what are the names of the American gladiators? Um... I guess nitro, laser, <laughs> diamond, zap. Uh, I like zap. I'll go with zap. Another 90s reference. I don't know if you know American Gladiators. Um, That's fine. Um, but seriously, God knows you and me so intimately that when he calls you, he actually makes you into what he called you to be. So he calls you where you are with a vision of where you will be because he's outside of time. He knows what it's going to be. He already knows. And that to me is really encouraging and exciting because God calls us for a purpose and a reason. He calls us for a purpose and a reason. And God's not someone to be like, hey, you, uh, repent, believe, got it? Cool, scram. I'm, I'm going to someone else. No, God calls us takes us in and walks with us in our sanctification process, in our process of leaving this world and becoming tr 
transformed and conformed to his image and who he created us to be. And he has a vision of what that's like. And not just for me, but for every single person that follows Jesus. And that's really good news. So God wants to walk with us towards sobriety. He wants to walk with us towards purpose, towards fulfillment of his plan, not only for us, but his plan for redemption of the whole universe. It all works together somehow. It's this master plan that we get to just walk into and we're actually invited to be a part of. Um, Which, by the way, this plan that God has is far, far, far greater than any plan you have for yourself. Jeremy, take notes. Because I need to hear that. Because I think I have a better plan. I, I think it all the time. I have a better plan than God's plan for me. And what's crazy is I only know what I would maybe want. I'm not even thinking about the whole universe and how that gets wrapped up in it. But God is and has, and he's calling me into being who he's created me to be. So then the next day, Jesus decided to go to Galilee. He found Philip and said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida. I know, Bethsaida, sure. And the city of Andrew and Peter, the two guys we just saw. So this is one of the hometown people. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, Nathanael, I mean, yeah, Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. So, again, Jesus finds Philip, and he personally calls Philip to follow him. So at the beginning, the two original guys originally follow Jesus because they saw him walking by because someone proclaimed it. But this time, Jesus actually finds Philip and asks him to follow me. And what's interesting about that is I think when I'm processing through, like, sometimes Jesus actually calls people himself still. When you think about the Middle East and how people hear about the gospel, I've heard so many stories where people have dreams of Jesus and him saying something, and then they're just prepared and waiting for someone to make it known and how they can know about him more. I mean, this is happening. I'm not making this up. Like, Jesus either has people call people or Jesus calls people, but everybody's called to follow him. And, and if we see here, finding... So, Jesus found Philip. Philip found Nathaniel, and Philip and all the other people found uh, Jesus to be the Messiah. A lot of finding is going on, a lot of discovering, right? Because finding implies the seeking out of a particular person. It's not just sitting back like, oh, found a quarter. It's just right here in front of me the whole time. It actually means seeking out something. So when a better translation of this would be Philip went to get Nathaniel. Jesus went to get Philip. They, they went to something. And this is, again, Greeking out on geek. No, geeking out on Greek. Yeah, switch. So the word here, find, it, it means this, a purposeful act of looking for and, important, going to a person. So you're not just looking, waiting for them to come to you. You're looking for, and when you find them, you go to them. That's what finding means here. And this is important because, like I said earlier, when we pray for the eat one, reach one thing, our prayer um, for 
this whole initiative is you're praying for eyes to see who you should be looking for. God, tell me who is in my life that I should be purposefully looking for and how to get to that person um, with the purpose of inviting them to eat and then coming and seeing Jesus. So that's what prayer is. It's, it's purposefully looking for and then going to the person. Now, Philip finds Nathaniel and he says, we have found him. We, meaning multiple people now. There's multiple people with Jesus saying, hey, it's not just me. We are all seeing this together. There's this uh, disciple posse forming. And we have found him. The one that we've been waiting for, the one that our scriptures testify about and the prophets testify about, he is Jesus of Nazareth. People back in the day didn't have last names. So you had to say the person in their city or the person and their father. And so for this one, they're being very specific. They're saying, Jesus of Nazareth, son of Joseph, right? And guess what? So basically they're saying, we found the Messiah, and guess what? It's a local guy. He's from here. Can you believe it? Our little fishing villages that the Messiah of the whole world is born from here. And we all know Nathaniel's response to this, which is, what? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Um, which on some levels is a fair question. He's from the area. It's like you growing up in your, your, your place of origins and saying, the Messiah of the whole universe and all of human history, God himself was born here. And wherever, you just fill in the blank. It's crazy. You would, you would probably say something similar. You'd be like, I've lived here my whole life. That's not possible. It's just didn't happen. So, But what's interesting is how does Philip respond to his friend Nathaniel's criticism and skepticism? How does he respond to that? Does he um, debate him? Uh, does he get angry with his friend? The question is, how do you respond to people who think Christianity is ridiculous? How do you respond to people who think Christianity is ridiculous, that um, it's a white man's religion, that um, they, they mock your beliefs? How do you respond to that? Because Philip simply invites him to examine firsthand if it's true or not. Because what else can he do? He invites him firsthand to say, examine it for yourself if it's true or not. And again, we see this phrase, come and see. Can you go back one slide, Francis? Come and see. And this is an offer to go and find out together. Together. He's not saying, go and see. He's not saying, come here, I'll, I'll explain it to you. He's saying, I, I am in the midst myself of seeing the truth of this. Come and see with me, this is true. I'm walking with Jesus. I'm walking behind Jesus. Please come and check it out for yourself. So come and see is an invitation to walk alongside your own discovery of who Jesus is. And I think this is, a, this is a really important difference in what we think about. Um, sometimes it's like, it's, it's a lot easier. Let, let me think how to explain this. It's a lot easier to invite someone to church than to invite someone to see Christ in you. 
Because you can, you can be like, yo, you should check this church out. Great, good gospel message, the music awesome. Phil, he has CDs, you should check it out, blah, blah, blah. But that's so easy compared to saying, this is true. Come see it changing my life. See how it's transforming me. I cannot get enough of it. it it's, just, it's just easier to, to give someone a book and say, hey, you should read this book. It has really good information. It's really good theology in here. Than saying, let me sit with you and talk with you and talk through what's going on in your life. What are the hardships you're experiencing? What are the doubts you're experiencing, right? Because that takes time and effort. And so we're quick to just pass it on to someone else. And I think that's probably because we don't have an active, like, refreshed walk with God happening. Because if you do, and you're walking with God, and you're receiving the benefits and the fruits of being in His presence, you're going to be like, I'm not getting outside of His presence. I want you to come and see for yourself. So we can both get this. Because it's amazing. So... He invites him. He invites his friend to come see Jesus. So this is what happens. This is kind of funny. Jesus saw Nathanael coming towards him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there's no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Okay. We're going to get to some stuff here. So, when Jesus says this is an Israelite indeed, a true Israelite in whom there's no deceit, he's not saying that this is someone who's perfect, someone who, who has no falseness about him, whatever. What he's saying is that he's, he's truly seeking. Like a true Israelite, a true um, person of God is going to truly have the motive of seeking to know who God is. Again, doesn't mean he's hyper-mature, awesome, whatever, on the spiritual levels of uh, holiness. He's just honestly seeking, not trying to deceive anyone, even himself. He really wants to know. Um, so when Nathaniel hears that Jesus says this of him, his obvious response is, and you are, why, how would you know that about me? I've never seen you before. Um, how do you know me? To which Jesus responds with a statement that would freak me out personally in multiple ways. Before Philip called you just now, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And so let me just kind of paint a picture of what this would be like. So it's just another day, and I decide, you know, it's been a few days. I've had a rough go at it. Um, I'm going to start my day under a fig tree. Because in antiquity, which means back in Jesus' day, in the whole culture, Jews would sit under fig trees to, to read their scriptures and to meditate on them. Because there's a lot of shade. And it's super hot. So when I lived in Haiti... It was the same thing. All the Haitians would be, if they're outside, under the shade, perfectly content, while I'm soaking wet, drenched through my shirt, because I'm not used to being outside this long. And they would just be looking at me like, scooting over, you want to sit here? Eventually I learned, yes, I do. And it's, it's funny because when you go into a different culture, you just realize how ridiculous some things are. So uh, there's no way to work out in Haiti. And so I just try and run. I just try and run, just to be active. And I'd be running, scorching heat, 
And um, all Haitians, this would be a classic thing they'd say to me as I'm running by. They're like, what are you running from? <laughs> and I'm like, not running from anything. I'm actually just exercise, you know, exercise. And they'd just be like, why? I mean, why would you do that? It's so hot outside. It makes no sense. And then I, my jog would slow down to a walk. And then I'd sit in the seat that they just made for me. And that would be our relationship. But... I digress. Um, so, yeah, so the, a fig tree, Jews would sit under it, and they'd be reading scripture. They would be um, yeah, meditating and just being in the cool part of the day, hopefully, but under the tree. And so I'm there reading the scriptures, and my friend comes up, right? And he tells me that he wants me to come and see the Messiah the promised one that my scriptures are just testifying about, that all my ancestors know about, we've talked about for a long, 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 long time, as far back as we could ever know, and that he's seen him, and that he's a local guy. I'm like, okay, I don't know if there's a little too much opium in your bread. I don't know, but sure, let's, let's go see him. And then as I'm walking up, this guy that apparently is the Messiah says, hey, you're a true Israelite. You don't have any deceit in you. And it's like, you don't know who I am. And he's like, no, yeah, I do. Before your friend just called you, I actually was watching you when you were under the fig tree earlier today. <laughs> so me, I would be feeling a lot of things, right? But the crazy thing is Jesus is right. What he tells them is true, and it's so true. Well, actually, we'll get to that. But so what's interesting to see here is that Jesus actually sees into first Nathaniel's heart and sees who he is on the inside. And then he also sees him from afar. So he sees internally and externally who Nathaniel is. And so Jesus sees who he is and Jesus sees where he is. And Jesus sees into our heart and sees literally everything we do. And that could make some of us in here really scared. But Jesus sees everything. God sees everything. There's nothing outside of God. He knows every single thing we do, every single thing we think, every single thing we feel. And Jesus knows Nathaniel before Nathaniel knows Jesus. And God actually knows us before we know God. And so I just want that to sink in for a second. God knows you. Like, he knows individually each person in here. He knows you. He knows what you've been thinking, where you've been, what you've been doing. And even still, he calls everybody. He calls you to follow him. He wants you. What he's saying is, I hope you follow me because I will show you more than what you've seen. So how does Nathaniel answer him? Rabbi, teacher, you are the son of of God. You are the king of Israel. And Jesus answered him, because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. Nathaniel is convinced that some supernatural thing just happened. In, in the Greco-Roman world, that would usually mean that um, someone did some magic or someone has a link to one of the gods but um, Jewish people, what they would think is that, okay, you're a prophet. You can see beyond 
like our present reality. And so he's, he's basically saying, you know, you are this person. And if, if Jesus is a prophet, what is he prophesying, right? Well, he's prophesying what John the Baptist, Andrew, Simon Peter, Philip, and whoever else is now with Jesus, and now Nathaniel, the true Israelite, is proclaiming that Jesus was the awaited Messiah. Everyone's, like, it's, it's just like this nervous energy of excitement, like, I don't want to get ahead of the ball here, but I think you might be the awaited Messiah of our people and all people and all humanity. And so he says that to Jesus, right? And what's Jesus's response? Because I said to you, I saw you under a fig tree. Do you believe? You haven't seen anything yet. You haven't even seen anything yet. Though, though the disciples have seen Jesus, they still have a way, like a ways to go, a long journey um, to experience and comprehend past Jesus' prophetic ability. Jesus has to be thinking when he's saying this to him, not that it's insulting, but just, you don't even know. You, you actually don't know fully who I am. I am more than just a prophet. I am the apocalyptic son of man who has come as a human from eternal origins to complete a mission given to me by my father. And I will return in the last days to serve as the end time judge of all things. So this little thing right here, this parlor trick, is nothing. You haven't seen anything. You don't even really understand who I am. You will see much greater things than these. And this is a promise of discipleship with Jesus, by the way. You will see, we will see, much greater things than he's already shown us in our walk so far. And if, if you haven't started walking with Jesus, he will show you so much more greater things than this world can show you. And the question is, does that excite you? Are you just cannot wait? What are the things Jesus is going to show me? Or are you tuning out right now, kind of nonchalant about it? Like, I don't know, maybe thinking about the, what game I'm going to watch this afternoon. And the, the question there is, why, why would you ask others to come and see? Why would you ask others to come and see? What have you seen? What can you testify to? What have you seen? And why would you ask others to come and see the same thing that you've seen? Because the point is, our statement here at the Ville Church is, for the glory of God, we want to see and show people Jesus at the Ville Church. We want to see, for the glory of God, we want to see and show people Jesus. And if you haven't seen Jesus, then what will you show to others? And if you haven't seen Jesus lately, your only motivation to show anyone anything is one of, like, obligation. It's because you feel like it's a Christian thing to do. That's what we should do. I should invite someone to church because I haven't done that in a while, and I haven't checked off that box. And so we, we view evangelism and telling others about Jesus as a chore, as like, oh, I forgot to make my bed today. Can't believe it. I'll just do it. All right. I'll do it. God, I'll tell someone about Jesus, you know. Sure, I'll do that. And it's sad. It's really sad when that happens because the most powerful, life-altering invitation that can be sent is one where someone is genuinely excited and even desperate to give away the riches, the treasures that he's tasted or she's tasted 
in Jesus. It's so easy to spot the game. I know y'all spotted it. It's so easy to spot the game, and it becomes cult-like. Hello, do you know Jesus? I have a five-track thing. If you want to take a quiz, we can make you fill it out, and then we can show you. It's like, it's so robotic. It's like, what are you doing? I don't feel like you actually genuinely believe what you're saying. When I first saw Jesus, like truly saw him for as much as I could see him at the time, it was my freshman year of college, okay? And I saw him enough to proclaim him as Savior of my soul and Lord of my life. But you know how shallow of a proclamation that is? Like, I just met him. I was willing to give over my whole life to him, and I just met him. I really didn't even know the extent at all who he was. I barely knew him, and my journey was just beginning. So even for me in college, there were so much greater things that I was going to see. Which brings us to the last verse of the chapter. And he said to them, Jesus said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. So he goes by saying, you're going to see greater things, and then he ends with this statement. So there's a few things I want to point out. If you ever read scripture, which you should, it's pretty amazing. If you ever see truly, truly, some people translate it, amen, amen, verily, verily. I don't know what that means. But what it's saying is, if it's a double word like that, it's, it's saying true on steroids. All right? What I'm about to say is as true as true can get. There is nothing truer than what's about to be spoken. So if you ever see that, you just stop, brace yourself, relax your shoulders, come back at it. And then look about, because it's about to just pow, right in the face. Well, that's how I think about it. For some of you, it might massage your shoulders. Anyway, truly, truly. Second thing to note, I say to you, you. The you here, sometimes we can't tell from the original language because our language is different. But in Greek, it's, it's a lot more uh, specified. You is plural. So that's important because he's not just saying it to Nathaniel. He's saying it to all the disciples present and all disciples who would be reading this later. So this is for anyone who follows Jesus. You, plural, all of my disciples. You will see heaven opened. What does that mean? Seeing heaven opened is like getting a peek and a view into the eternal, otherworldly realities of God. So there's a veil between our world and eternity. And so if we say you're going to see heaven open, you're going to have, you can view, you can see into that, into whatever that is, whatever God's business is. Um, and what will we see specifically through that? The angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man to the Jews standing with Jesus, before Jesus. Like, this doesn't really mean anything to us. We're like, that's weird. What are you talking about? But to the Jews before him, they would have known exactly what this meant. 
Because if you're a Jew back in the day, like before you're 13, you got to memorize the, the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Bible. You memorize every verse of the first five books of the Bible, the first five books of the Old Testament. So they would have known that this is in reference to Jacob's dream in Genesis 28. Now, in this dream, Jacob was going from one place to another. He got tired. He got a rock, put it behind his head because he didn't have pillows, and he fell asleep. And then he had this dream. And in the dream, there was this ladder. Y'all ever heard that phrase, Jacob's ladder? Uh, there was like a stairwell, whatever, where he's just seeing angels going up and coming down this ladder from earth into heaven. So forever ladder or forever stairs. He's just having this crazy vision in his dream. And as he's in the dream, seeing this, like, whatever that looks like, he notices Yahweh is just standing right next to him. Like, like he's so focused on this eternal vision, he, he doesn't even see that Yahweh himself is standing right next to him in his dream. So Jesus is saying, you will see this not in a dream, but you will see it in reality with me, the one standing right next to you. That this isn't a vision anymore. That the, son, that the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man will happen in real life. And you will witness it. Now, do the disciples see these celestial beings ascending and descending at some other point in John? Do you remember that segment? Anybody? Because it's not there. It's not there. And because... Jesus, what he's saying is this isn't actually literally what's going to happen. He's saying it. He's giving a picture of what's going to happen. Um, and the picture is one of constant, inter- uninterrupted communion between Jesus and the Father. If you think about it, angels are messengers, right? Like God's army. It's interesting if you think about it. Satan's a great deceiver. All he can do is twist truth. God's army is messengers of the great truth, and they battle each other. And what we're seeing here is Jesus saying, from this point on, I'm going to be in constant communion with the Father. That I'm going to be constantly plugged in intimately with my Father. And um, it's kind of a, this beautiful picture, if you think about it. So from Jesus' ministry, even from like this wedding he's about to go to in uh, Cana, all the way up to Gethsemane, where he's sweating blood from prayers, to walking up to the hill with a cross on his back. Jesus is in constant communion, constant communication with God. He's never not in God's presence. And this is important because um, all that Jesus was asked to do, that God sent him on this mission to do, all of it was done from the the foundational basis that he had communion with the Father, that he was with the Father, that he was in the presence of the Father. Because there's no way he could have done these things outside of that. I mean, what he was being asked to do was too much. Which brings us to communion. Why we do communion. We hear that word communion and Communion, basically, is when we, we come and lay bare our thoughts and emotions before God. Like, our most intimate feelings, our most, our just biggest fears, 
we can be truly honest before God and know that he hears us and that he wants to respond to us. So we, we desperately, like, who in here is tired of being alone? Who's in here is tired of feeling burnt out or feeling just frustrated with the world or that no one understands them or that they just can't, just, they just are mad, they're just mad. Or they're lonely and they're scared. And God's offering true communion with us. And we get to do that now before the presence of other believers. Like, the church is a safe house in that way. Like, we don't turn away anybody. And we give everyone equal opportunity to actually admit their sins, that there's no sin too big, that God can't forgive, and that we can actually love each other and encourage each other into deeper communion with God. So today, as we're taking communion, I just want you to think about this. You will see heaven opened. We have seen heaven open. We've seen heaven open, and there's no need for us to actually try to go up into heaven and meet God, because we can't. We can't do it. Our sin has separated us from God. But heaven opened, and the Son of Man actually came down through it to us. Um, we, we eat bread, and we, we drink juice, remembering how God invited us into his presence through the sacrificial death of his son for the payment of our sins against him. Jesus came down to us. And not only to us, he went down through death. He went further down. He went further down than anyone's ever gone and then came back up. And he resurrected. After Jesus resurrected, he went and made good on his promise to Nathaniel here. He said, you will see. You will see all of this. You will see what it looks like when you're in constant communion. You will see resurrection happen that God promises. And if you, if you know Nathaniel, after Jesus resurrected, he was one of the seven disciples in the boat that weren't catching anything. And Jesus was on the shore, gave them a lot of fish, filled their nets like this. And they're like, is that Jesus? That can't be Jesus. That's Jesus? Jump out of the boat, swim into him, and he invites them again to breakfast to eat on the shore. So Jesus full circle, like, sees him right when he comes to him and then makes good on his promise. And Jesus descended on this rescue mission um, for all of us, not just Nathaniel, not just the disciples then, but for everyone of all time. And he, he went willingly to do it because he was in communion with his father who filled him up and encouraged him and loved him through the whole thing and knowing that it would cost him everything, that he would experience death for the first time, that he would uh, experience um, just pain, suffering, and he did it willingly because he loves us. And after faithfully accomplishing his Father's will, you remember what happened? He ascended back into heaven. He came down, and then he ascended into heaven. And now he's the ruler of the whole universe. God has praised Jesus and what he's done and said, I give you keys to the kingdom. You, you are the ruler and the judge of everything. So as we see Jesus at the end as this man who stood on the shores, inviting his disciples to be in his presence, we can actually see Jesus now, the Son of God, not just the man, but the Son of God, standing at the gate between earth and heaven, 
between humans and God, embracing everyone that follows him to help him go through, to help him see into the heavenly realities, to help him know communion with the Father, that he, he is our leverage, he is everything for us. And as we discover for ourselves, um, as we are forsaking this world, leaving it behind to follow Jesus, we won't be able to help ourselves to invite others. So that, that's just going to be an overflow. If you're so full and so joyous because you're seeing Jesus and all the miraculousness that is God and what he's done in his gospel, the good news, it's not even you're going to think about, well, should I invite someone this month? Have I already invited them? It's just going to be constant overflow of your heart. You're just going to be so excited about it. And the reason we have each one reach one is because we want to just put it in front of you. If you get distracted, like, oh, not that I'm not doing my duty, but I'm not experiencing God. I'm not in God's presence. And something's wrong with that. I'm missing out. So today, as you take communion, I really want every person to ask yourself, as you're taking communion, are you having true communion with God? Or are you just going through the motions? You know it's Sunday, and we do communion here every week. So you get up, you eat it, drink it, sit down, and that's it. Or are you actually inviting God and putting all your stuff on the table and saying, God, I want intimacy with you. I, I know you know me. I want to be honest with it, and I want to leave whatever it is that brings death behind. I want to leave my sin behind, and I want to come to you asking for your forgiveness and asking for you to give me life and hope in this life and the next. I, I just want to experience your presence. I just want to be in your presence, please. So I'd ask you to take a moment right now and really think about that. Are you going through the motions, or are you actually going to experience intimacy, communion with God? And whenever you're ready, I don't expect people to get up right away. If you do, that's fine. But whenever you're ready, I, I want you to come forward. I want you to eat, drink, enjoy, worship the one who has actually made being in God's presence even possible. Jesus Christ. So take, take time to think about it. Like, why do I neglect being in God's presence? Why do I not want to face God? Why would I run to other things that God made for other reasons when I can experience joy, fulfillment, hope, peace, all the things I've ever longed for in God? But yet I still run to other things. And as you're processing that, God's inviting you to come commune with him now. So you can actually pray with him now. He'll hear you. And as you're coming up, if you want prayer, uh, Tony and Connie are going to be up here. Please ask them. They're going to help pray. I'm going to be up here too. And we'd love to pray for you. If you need prayer, please let us pray for you. So I'm going to pray for us now, and then I'm going to ask the uh, uh, people to come up so they can sing. But let's pray.